right, well, welcome to session two of the Apologetics of Jesus and Paul. And in this session, we're going to look at a specific example in two parts from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, where Jesus used apologetics and he um, he refuted the arguments of his opponents. And we're going to look at the particular way that he did it. We're going to analyze his argumentation and then we are going to look at some modern examples of similar or analogous objections that we might face in our everyday lives and in our interactions with skeptics, uh, non-believers, non-Christians, atheists, um, who, whoever we may come in contact with who doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at how to apply the apologetical methods that Jesus is using here with, um, you know, with our opponents in everyday life. So um, as we go, it's important to remember our driving principle here from last time, which is this. We must defend God's truth in God's way. It's his word. It's his truth. This isn't a system that we came up with or that we had to develop for ourselves. And um, not only does does the Lord provide the content we're defending, but he also uh, provides the principles which we use to develop our apologetic approach. And then as we're going to see today, he also gives us some great case studies of how this apologetic works in action. So I'm really excited to get into this and um, let's, let's go ahead and do it. Okay. So apologetics of Jesus and Paul session two, just a quick reminder. You can learn more about the think Institute and the hammer and anvil society, which is our applied discipleship wing at thethink.institute. All right, now, today's story, I've sort of uh, humorously, at least I think it's humorous, titled The Heels and the Healing. So what's a heel? Um, I'm not talking about the bottom of your foot. I'm talking about the, uh, the term that's used in pro wrestling where there's a bad guy. You know, the, the guy who's just a jerk, his, uh, you know, like the Joker says in The Dark Knight, some men, I mean, you know, as Alfred says about the Joker, some men just want to watch the world burn. You know, there are some guys who are just villains. They're just uh, uh, misanthropic. They've got antipathy towards people, towards everything that's good and right. And in pro wrestling, these guys are the heels. They're, they're set up and you just, man, you boo when they come on stage, you know, you, you, you hiss and everybody just gets angry. They're the villains that you just sort of love to hate. And of course, if we're talking about the gospels, there's only a few candidates for that. You know, there's Satan who tempts Jesus. You know, we, 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 uh, certainly are, are no friend to him. There's the Sadducees and uh, they didn't believe in any spirit or afterlife. People wonder why they called the Sadducees. Well, they didn't believe in uh, the resurrection. So they were very sad, you see. Um, and then there were the, um, tax collectors, um, who actually have a kind of surprising, uh, good streak and they actually come out all right in scripture. And, um, and then, you uh, you also have the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are going to be the bad guys, the heels in this story. And and what are we talking about? The heels and the healing. This is a story of a time when Jesus healed someone, and that led to some controversy. But of course, there's more to the story as there always is. As we go, we're going to analyze Christ's argumentation and uh, see if we can't figure out some principles to apply to our own lives. All right. Now, this is a story in 
two parts. And um, in part one, which is Matthew chapter 12, verses one through eight, here's what's going on. The Pharisees attempt to invalidate Jesus's authority by accusing his disciples of breaking God's law. What happens next is Jesus destroys their position internally. He does an internal critique or a reductio ad absurdum, and then he reestablishes his authority and he calls them to understand God's compassion. Now, last time, just a quick recap, we talked about a three-step presuppositional approach where you do an internal critique, you reduce the your opponent's position to absurdity, then you present the biblical worldview and show how it's internally consistent, and then step three is the gospel appeal. It's the evangelistic appeal. And uh, we're going we're gonna to use at least the first two steps uh, pretty frequently here, pretty prominently, and uh, we will bring in that third step as well, the evangelistic appeal. All right, so this is part one. Now, part two, before we dive into these parts, let me give you the synopsis. Part two is chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. And in this section, the Pharisees try to trap Jesus into breaking sacred tradition, holy tradition that they believed actually came from God, or at least they wanted everyone else to believe that. And um, they wanted to trap him either into one of one of two terrible outcomes. Either he breaks sacred tradition and is seen by the people as contradicting God, or he contradicts his own teaching, his own teaching on compassion. So they're trying to trap him, and uh, we're going to see if they're capable of doing that. What happens then is Jesus exposes their inconsistency and their hypocrisy, and proves himself to be the Messiah. I mean, Jesus really goes hard and doesn't just refute their argument and their accusation. He actually goes all the way with it and um, and uh, and establishes his identity as the Messiah. So it's really, really amazing. And we're going to get to watch Jesus in action here in, in just a minute. So let's dive in. Part one, Matthew 12, 1 through 8. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and get it out. I'm also going to put the scripture up on the screen as well. Here's part one. At that time, Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick and eat some heads of grain. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, See, now if I'm reading this with my kids, I would adopt some kind of a voice like, See, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. You know, kind of like a, a, a green goblin in the original Spider-Man movie with Tobey Maguire. Something like that. You know, that's how I envision the Pharisees talking. Maybe you've got a different voice. But these are, remember, these are the heels. These are the bad guys. So, you know, it's, it, I think that's appropriate. Look, here's the indication of the accusation. If Jesus' disciples who have learned how to follow God from Jesus, if they're breaking the law of Moses, then Jesus, their teacher, must not be godly. You see what I'm saying? So what they wanted to do was they wanted to undercut the authority of Jesus by showing that his teachings contradict Scripture. If his teachings contradict Scripture and his disciples who are following him are contradicting Scripture, well, a man of God would never contradict God's word. And so here's the apologetic challenge that's being raised here. Do the teachings of Jesus 
contradict the teachings of the Old Testament? Is Are Jesus and Moses locked in some kind of theological battle royale? Are they in opposition to each other? Or is there a way of explaining how what Jesus is doing here, which which at first glance really doesn't look that good to 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 the Pharisees and to the people in in uh, in this Second Temple uh, Judaic era of the first century, it doesn't look good. But is there a way of explaining how the two are actually in harmony? Well, let, let's find out exactly how Jesus does that. Now, remember we're, we're talking about a three step approach here, and. In the three, the first step of the three-step approach, you enter into the other person's worldview for the sake of argument and reduce it to absurdity. And one of the coolest discoveries that I've made recently and that I want us all to make together is Jesus engages with his opponents presuppositionally. I mean, it's very cool once you see it. People think presup is some sort of a philosophical uh, jujitsu, if you will. Maybe I just have jujitsu on the mind. I just joined this UFC gym. Um, but um, they, they think that it's, you need you need a, a degree in philosophy if you engage in precept. Well, no, you just have to know your Bible. You just have to know how to read the Bible. And actually, I said that last week. Um, but it really is true. So let's analyze this and let's see what um, let's see what Jesus is doing. He said to them. Now, this is verse three. Haven't you read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry? How he entered the house of God and they ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him or for those with him to eat, but only the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on Sabbath days, the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent? Jesus is reducing their position to absurdity. Basically what he's saying boils down to this. Look, the Bible that you guys claim to have mastered, the scriptures you claim to believe and have built your life upon, I just gave you two examples of sacred law being violated, at least by your standards, and they're being violated, they're being broken for compassion's sake. So maybe there's a principle at work here that you guys don't understand. See, by your own standards, you ought to be condemning, you Pharisees, ought to be condemning David and the priest. And yet, of course, you don't. Why? Why not condemn David? Why not condemn the priest? Because if they did, that would put them in violation of God's own law. See, if they're going to stand in opposition to the priest, that would put them against God because who set up the priestly system? You know, if they're going to oppose David, that would put them in opposition to God because what was David? David was a man after God's own heart. David was a type of the Messiah. And so what Jesus is saying is, look, I got two examples that you dare not try to contradict. Both know, you Pharisees and I, we both know what David and what the high priest does every single Sabbath. And by your own standard, you really ought to be condemning them. So why aren't you? So here we see, to, to summarize this first step, the Pharisees' own system undercuts their accusation and makes them guilty of the very thing they're accusing Jesus of. They're accusing Jesus of violating God's law, of opposing God. But if that's true, then they're doing the exact same thing by that standard. So do you see the the absolute brilliance of Jesus in his first step here? Okay, let's continue. Oh, and by the way, if you're if you're curious about um, when did 
David, when did he eat that showbread? Uh, what is the showbread? So the um, the bread of the presence, the showbread, the, the bread of the presence was um, was something, there were 12 loaves that were laid out in the temple and they represented the um, the the 12 tribes of Israel. And you can read about in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 6, how David did exactly what Jesus said he did. He goes into the temple, he's famished, and um, he asks the priest for some of this bread, and the priest gives it to him. Um, it wasn't lawful, but there was a higher principle at play. Okay, so you can read that in... Uh, in the accounts of David there in 1 Samuel 21. Okay, now let's look at step two. Now, this is amazing what Jesus does here. I mean, you want to talk about just, uh, <laughs> you want to talk about guts. You want to talk about boldness. Jesus straight up tells them in, in verse six, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here for the son of man. Now, this is skipping ahead. To verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. First of all, look at the formulation Jesus uses here. He says, I tell you. Now, the prophets of the Old Testament, you know how they used to introduce their prophecy? They would say, thus says the Lord. Jesus says, I tell you. Jesus speaks on his own authority. And he can do that because he's been sent by the Father and because he's God in the flesh. So Jesus says, something greater than the temple is here. Now, what's he doing? He's presenting his position. This is step two. He's inviting them into his own worldview for the sake of argument. And he's showing them that in in this worldview, he is greater than Moses's cultic system, Moses's cultic laws, cultic referring to the temple, the sacrificial system, the worship system. And as the son of man, which is a reference back to Daniel chapter 7, this messianic figure in chapter 7 of Daniel, Jesus exercises authority over the whole Mosaic covenant. And what was the sign of the Mosaic covenant? The sign of the Mosaic covenant was the Sabbath. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, there is this son of man. Daniel says that in his night visions, he saw one like a son of man approaching the ancient of days. It was a vision of things to come. It hadn't happened yet, but it was a vision of a man who sits down next to God and receives a kingdom and a dominion that will last forever. And over time, this um, this figure, they, they didn't know who he was, but he took on a very important theological significance. And it was hypothesized, you know, who is this guy? And he came to be associated with the Messiah, but also with this um, uh, almost a, a second Lord, a second power in heaven who reigned alongside God with divinity, divine qualities. Now, they didn't, they didn't have the, the doctrine of the Trinity fully fleshed out, but they knew enough to know that the Son of Man reigned with God as God. And that didn't quite fit the paradigms they had, but the idea was um, there's this son of man who's, who's going to rule and reign. And Jesus says, guess what? I am that son of man. And as that son of man, I, am, I have that dominion. I have that authority. And I have, that means I have authority over the covenant that you are under. And as the authority of that covenant, I have, Jesus says, the ability to properly interpret, and if I want to, to transcend the law of Moses and to bring in something new. 
and therefore I, Jesus, am innocent. Because you can't, I'm Teflon. You can't touch me. You can't accuse me of violating this covenant because if I want to, I can transcend the covenant and I can usher in a new covenant. And if I'm Lord of the covenant, then I'm surely Lord of the sign of the covenant, which is the Sabbath. So Jesus presents his worldview and um, and shows them how there is zero inconsistency because if he's Lord of the Sabbath, then there is no problem with his disciples picking grain on the Sabbath. But then Jesus does something interesting, and I want to associate this with step three. The steps aren't as clear cut when you're reading this in the narrative. And guess what? They're not going to be as clear cut as boom, one, two, three. When you're engaging with non-believers, you're going to go step one, step three, step two. You're going to go back and forth. And like I said last time, there's a bit of a dance to it. But here we see Jesus in step three. He's sort of, it's sort of overlapping with step two, but look what he says. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice you would not have condemned the innocent. Now, when did Jesus, uh, what is Jesus saying here? He's, he's referring to, uh, he's quoting Hosea chapter six, verse six, which says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And Jesus is calling them out really remarkably here. He says, if you had known what this means, you would not have condemned the innocent. Jesus is appealing to the underlying principle in God's law that the Sabbath is there as, as a restful period for man, not man for the Sabbath. Man was not created for the Sabbath. But he's doing something really fascinating by bringing up this verse specifically from Hosea 6.6 6, because in Matthew 9.13, so three chapters earlier, Jesus had told them, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So Jesus, three chapters earlier, called his shot. Do you see this? Jesus called his shot. He warned them. He set them up. He goes, hey, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Because it's you can almost see Jesus like the teacher at the head of the class. Guess what, kids? There's going to be a quiz on this on Friday. So you better go study Hosea 6.6. And do they? No. It's quiz time here in chapter 12, verse 7. And they haven't studied. And now they're caught totally flat-footed, totally off guard. They hadn't studied it. And now, because of that, Jesus gets them on not understanding the merciful nature of God. See, there's this principle in the law that is that is God's mercy. And they're trying to be these hardliners, and they're neglecting mercy. If they had understood the mercy of God, then they would have recognized the innocence of Jesus. But who's truly innocent? Well, only God is holy. Only God is good. So because Jesus is exercising compassion by allowing his disciples to pick green on the Sabbath. Now, all of this, I haven't even mentioned the fact that there there was a provision worked into the law that the um, the the agricultural families who were who were growing the, you know the farmers, were not to trim or were not to harvest the edges of their crops. Why? So that the hungry, the poor, um, widows and orphan types could go and glean a meal when they were hungry. Well, that's all, that's mercy. So Jesus walking along and doing this is not even violating that law. It's not violating the principle. And, and the fact that they're doing it on the Sabbath, um, Jesus says, is not problematic either. And they should have known that. So step one, step two, step three, Jesus refutes them presuppositionally. All right, now, 
let's break into let's break this down and look at some modern day um, objections that are analogous. Okay, modern equivalents of this challenge. Here's a couple of objections you might have heard. The Bible can't be true because it contains contradictions. Well, how does that one tie in with the the one we're just uh, the one we just looked at? Well, because supposedly what's being set up here is a contradiction between Jesus's teachings and the Old Testament teachings. But do you see how nowadays the Bible is 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 now a cohesive whole? Old and New Testament, we believe, are are together as one. So a modern form of this argument, you know, the, the Pharisees accusing Jesus of contradicting the Old Testament is to say something like, you know, the New Testament contradicts the Old Testament. Or we could just broaden that and say, anytime someone says the book contains contradictions, they're making an analogous uh, argument. Part two, or, or uh, objection two then, is this. God's, now this is sort of flipping the accusation on its head. God's laws in the Old Testament go against human well-being. See, we could imagine a skeptic um, sort of coming alongside the Pharisees and going, hey, yeah, I, uh, hey, you Pharisees, you know what? I can see why you didn't recognize mercy in God's law. Because God's law isn't merciful. God's law it does not support human flourishing and well-being. So, so hey, you Pharisees, you're really just being consistent. Okay, so how do we refute these? These are two objections that arise from this passage. How do we refute them? Uh, let, well, we have to refute them like Jesus. We have to defend God's truth God's way. So the first one, the Bible can't be true because it contains contradictions. Let's let's take, let's go through our three-step process. Step one. Hey, Mr. Skeptic, your own self-contradictory system can't account for logic, and you need logic to explain why contradictions are so bad. And by the way, your own system has contradictions in it. You yourself uh, believe non, uh, non-cohesive things, con- contradictory things. And so, um, and and we can point. You know, I'm not. I won't do it right now. Maybe we can do it in the Q and A. But um, what you're doing is you're doing the the same thing that Jesus did when Jesus showed them that the scriptures that they believed in contradicted their accusations. Jesus was doing the same thing. Hey, the system that you guys claim to believe in is contradictory. Um, and then step two, we're gonna we're gonna invite this stick in our worldview for the sake of argument and show them that it makes sense to the objection and resolves it. Scripture's God slash Christ, um, Jesus is the Logos, and, and the Word was with God and the Word is God, John chapter 1, is the basis for logic. So if you want contradictions, you need logic. But God is the foundation for logic in the biblical worldview. Well, and, and in objective reality, but the biblical worldview is true. But remember, we're inviting them into our worldview for the sake of argument. Now, God, as the foundation for for logic, God cannot contradict himself. The Bible says God cannot lie. Also, God slash Jesus has perfect knowledge, and I don't. But Jesus authenticated all of Scripture. Constantly in the scriptures, Jesus appeals to the scriptures, and Jesus also authorized the publication of the New Testament. So all of scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, is authenticated by Jesus. And in the biblical worldview, Jesus is Lord, just like what Jesus said, you know, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, 
I'm Lord of, I'm greater than the temple. Well, the way we might express that today is Jesus is Lord of logic. He's Lord of everything. So, um, so what that means is if Jesus, who has infinite knowledge and is the basis for logic itself, has authenticated scripture, then even if I don't understand a purported contradiction, that's not a problem for me because Jesus does understand it and Jesus has authenticated scripture. So within the biblical worldview, there's no contradiction. Do you see what I'm saying? Even if there is a supposed contradiction, an apparent contradiction, all I have to say, and, and I believe this in my heart, is Jesus authenticated that those two verses that seem to contradict. I just need to do more study. The problem is with me. The problem is not with Scripture or, or with, with Christ. And that's, that's not, to them, that doesn't sound like a cop-out. Because for they already don't believe Jesus is Lord. They don't believe Scripture is real. Scripture is true. But in their worldview, they have no basis for um, for appealing to logic anyway. So it, does, it so it doesn't matter. It's like, of course, they already don't believe in Jesus. Of course, they're not going to believe Jesus is Lord of logic. I'm not asking him to believe based on his own beliefs and presuppositions. I'm asking him to enter into my worldview and to see that there's no contradiction. So so the the objection dissolves. Now, step three, we can imagine saying something like this, the same Bible that solves the problem of logic and therefore negates the possibility of contradictions in Scripture, also says that your opposition to him is sinful, the wages of sin is death, and the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's various different ways to to enter into the gospel conversation, but um, the point is apologetics is meant to serve our evangelism and to vindicate God's truth, and so uh, you want to get to the gospel if you can. Okay, what about the second objection? God's laws in the Old Testament go against human well-being. All right, here's how we might refute that. Step one, we're going to enter into the unbelieving worldview for the sake of argument and perform a reductio, a reductio ad absurdum. We're going to reduce it to absurdity. Here's what we might say. Your own inconsistent system, by the way, this is going to sound very familiar. That's the thing about precept. As you start to engage in it, the arguments start to sound very similar. They all start to sound the same. Uh, the reason why is because this is how Jesus argued and, and and this is how we refute unbelieving worldviews. Okay, so we might say, step one, your own inconsistent system cannot give a standard for well-being. What is well-being in, a, in an atheistic uh, or a godless worldview? And if it can't give a standard for well-being, then you can't rec- uh, recognize violations of being because you have no way of judging. It's kind of like if someone were to ask you, yeah, how tall is that door? You might say, I don't know, um, you know, seven feet maybe? Well, you don't really know until you get out your ruler. If I don't have a ruler, I can't measure the door. If I don't have a standard, I can't measure whether or not something is promoting or negating well-being. What is well-being? Well-being supposes a standard for how humanity is supposed to to live and and flourish. So that's step one. Step two, scripture gives the basis for a standard of well-being. By the way, that standard is God, God's word, God's law. And that standard needs to be placed in its proper context and subordinated to other values that are superior to it. For example, God's justice. What's more important to God? That you have happy feelings all the time or that he is glorified and that his justice is vindicated? Well, according to scripture, God is for God. God's glory is preeminent to him. Now, here's the cool thing. God is merciful and God is just. God says that he is both just and the justifier of those who trust in Christ Jesus. Do you see how this 
not only shows that there's no contradiction in the biblical worldview, but also it it uh, feeds very nicely into step three, the gospel appeal. Hey, you want to talk about mercy? You want to talk about well-being? Do you know the greatest threat facing humanity today is the threat of God's judgment and, and eternal hell? And do you know that God provided a solution to that? You want to talk about well-being? Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive us our sins and to um, to to free us from the condemnation that our sins rightly brought. You want to talk about well-being? How about eternal well-being? Let me introduce you to Jesus. Boom, it goes right into a gospel presentation, a gospel invitation. Okay? Now, let's look at part two. And um, uh, you guys have any, for, for those who are watching, uh, if you're watching this later, I've got several guys watching right now and um, who are taking this course. And so I'll speak to you guys now who are currently watching live. If you have questions, thoughts, feel free to write them down. Feel free to put them in the chat and we'll address them at the end. All right. Now, part two is verses nine through 14. Part one and part two are very related, which is why we're dealing with this passage as a whole, as opposed to two separate accounts. But you almost could break it up into two separate accounts. We're going to see why in just a minute. Okay, this is verse, starting in verse 9. Moving on from there, he entered the synagogue. There, there he saw a man who had a shriveled hand. And in order to accuse him, Jesus, they asked him, I'm going to do my Pharisee voice again, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, here's the implication here. If Jesus says yes, Yes, it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath. First of all, that looks a lot like work. You know, you're doing you're doing something that is uh, you're you're creating something, you're building something, so to speak. It sure looks like you're working on the Sabbath. But if he says yes, he's going against their holy tradition called the Mishnah. Now, if you don't know what the Mishnah is, the Mishnah is the body of extra scriptural, meaning outside of scripture, uh, traditions that had been built up over the years. And there was, there was some teaching around that. As far as I understand, I'm not an expert in it, but as far as I understand, there was this expectation or there was this understanding that, um, some of the Mishnah even actually arose from Moses and it was sort of revealed in, to Moses and, and handed down orally. The problem is, uh, it's like, Many different religion and denominations, quote unquote, holy tradition today, a lot of their mission a contradicted scripture. And only one of the two can be God breathed. And uh, spoiler alert, it's not the Mishnah. Okay? It's not to say that there's nothing good in the Mishnah, but if it contradicts scripture, let scripture be the judge. Let God be true and every man be a liar, as the good book says. Now, at this time, though, the Mishnah was seen as very authoritative. So if Jesus is contradicting the Mishnah, ooh, this does not look good for Jesus. You know, we tend to think of the the Pharisees as these heels, as these villains. You have to remember, in th- in that time, they were the heroes of the story. Uh, they were the wealthy. Wealth was seen as a, as a sign of God's blessing and approval. They kept the Torah, man, to the, the jot and tittle. They tithed on their mint and their cumin and everything else. I mean, these guys were the heroes, uh, religiously speaking. So for Jesus to contradict their teaching and their tradition, that he better be able to defend that according to them. You know, 
he, he better be able to um, to back that up. Well, of course, he's he's the Lord Christ. He can back it up, and we're going to see that. But what their goal was, they wanted him was they wanted him to either contradict God, quote unquote, or to contradict himself. How would he be contradicting himself? Jesus just appealed to mercy. See, they're trying to do a little jujitsu themselves here. They're trying to, they're, you know what? I'm, they're trying to use his attack against him. Oh, okay, Jesus, you're going to appeal to mercy, to compassion. That's what God desires, right? Well, is it okay to heal on the Sabbath then? That would be merciful, wouldn't it? But then you're going to have to contradict the Mishnah. What are you going to do, Jesus? Well, Jesus is the boss. He's going to show him exactly what he's going to do. And this is the challenge. This is sort of the, the, the if we're going to abstract out a challenge here, it's this. Do Christians just choose what commands not to follow? Are, are, the, are the, the teachings of Scripture, the teachings of Christianity, insofar as they're in line with Scripture, are they really just arbitrary? Is that all they are? And we just have to kind of pick and choose. You know, you can't follow both. You got you to gotta pick one. We're going to get more into that. And, and uh, uh, on the screen, I'm showing a very f- familiar face right now. Uh, this is former President Barack Obama. When he was campaigning, he said something that expresses this objection very well. I, I don't know if I can do a, a Barack Obama impression, but uh, I'm going to give it a shot. Okay, here's, here's, what, he, here's what he says. <clears throat> uh, which passages of Scripture should guide our public policy? Should we go with Leviticus, which suggests slavery is okay and that uh, eating shellfish is an abomination? Or we could go with Deuteronomy, which suggests stoning your child if he strays from the faith. <laughs> Folks haven't been reading their Bible. All right, that's the end of my terrible Barack Obama impression. But do you see what he's accusing Christians of? He's accusing Christians of picking and choosing. Oh, the Old Testament God, he was so capricious. He was so arbitrary. And um, and if you really wanted to follow the the Bible, you'd be stoning your kids and you'd be, you, you couldn't eat shellfish. Or another one we often hear is you couldn't eat fabric of, uh, you know, two, you couldn't wear clothes of two different kinds of fabrics. Well, is does this objection hold weight? Is there a contradiction between the old and the new and we just have to kind of pick and choose which ones we like? Well, let's see how Jesus handles it. Step one, he replied to them. This is verse 11. He replied to them, this is Jesus now. Who among you, if he had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? A person is worth far more than a sheep. So it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. So Jesus exposes three beliefs that they held that didn't hold together. One, it's right to help one's animal on the Sabbath. How do we know they believed that? Because they did that. That's what they did. They helped their, so what are they going to say? No, this is wrong what I'm doing? No, of course not. They believed that it was right to help an animal on the Sabbath. And we know that because they didn't contradict Jesus there. They didn't go, no, I would never help my beast when it falls into uh, a pit on the Sabbath. Okay. Uh, Second belief. A man is worth more than an animal. How do we know that they believe that? Well, first of all, they didn't contradict Jesus when he said it. Second of all, they did believe the Torah. And Jesus, uh, God made man on the sixth day separate from the animals and gave them dominion over the animals. So man is worth more than an animal. Now, the third belief that they held, which didn't hold together with the other two, is this. Helping a man 
is immoral on the Sabbath. How do we know that they believe this? Because this is the accusation that they're bringing to Jesus or, or the puzzle that they're bringing to Jesus. Clearly, their mission has said that it was wrong to heal on the Sabbath. What is healing? Healing is helping out a man. So if it's wrong to help, if it's wrong to heal, um, then it's wrong to help on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees are holding these three beliefs and they, the three beliefs don't hold together. So step one, Jesus is showing them the Pharisees' own principled principles betrayed them. Their prohibition of healing on the Sabbath was merely arbitrary. What does that mean? Arbitrary means it has no basis. It's purely preference. They just chose it because they chose it. It's not rooted in God's word. Because they hang together with their beliefs. If you can help an animal, and a man is better than an animal, why couldn't you help a man? That's purely arbitrary. And Jesus is like a good presuppositional apologist. He is exposing the arbitrariness of their worldview and of their of their accusation. Now, what about step two? Then he told the man, he's turning to the man with the crippled hand now, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was restored as good as the other. See, this gnarled hand, look, this is what's going on here. This withered hand had kept the man from temple worship. Leviticus 21 verses 18 and 19 say that a man with an injured hand cannot go into the temple. Jesus therefore authenticates his previous claim that he is greater than the temple. Do you remember how he said, I'm or one greater than the temple is here? Something greater than the temple is here? Well, Jesus is healing the deformity that kept this man from the temple. Temple worship, temple law, Mosaic law, did not provide a means of healing. It only provided a means of purity of temple worship, external purity. And so the the temple and the, its associated law could exclude the man with the withered hand, but it could not heal the man with the withered hand. Jesus, who is greater than, greater than the temple, can heal the man and restore him to right standing before God and and therefore to temple worship. So Jesus is following through on his previous claim to be greater than the temple, and he's also authenticating his claim that it is good, uh, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath because, um, uh, well, he, he claims that it's lawful, and then he he says, and I'm going to do good on the Sabbath. So he's authenticating his own beliefs and practices are in line with what is claimed. Um, what What's happening here? How is this related to presuppositional apologetics? This is step two. Now, this is not your traditional argument, okay? This isn't a proposition. This is an act of power. But Jesus' powerful miracle overcame the law and restored the man to God. He's presenting them a worldview, and he's literally giving them an actual view with their eyes and showing them, look at this. Look at me. I am greater than the temple. I want you to see this, you Pharisees. I'm not just claiming this. I'm proving it to you. Jesus is showing that he he is greater than the law, making him the greater lawgiver. How do we know he's the lawgiver? Go back to Matthew chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount is a re-giving of the law, if you will, or a giving of the new law, the law of Christ, um, 
and Jesus is is the greater lawgiver. And we, we see that his law is greater because Jesus has uh, greater authority and greater power than the than what the original law allowed for. So Jesus is the greater lawgiver. And who gives the law? A prophet, Moses. Moses gave the first law, so Jesus is the greater prophet. He's also the, um, the Messiah. He's the king. How do we know he's the king? Because he, he's exercising that dominion that the Son of Man is supposed to exercise. The Son of Man is given dominion, authority, power, control. And here's Jesus exercising godly, divine power, authority, and control. Who can, who can heal like this? Only God or someone sent by God. And by the way, the Pharisees knew that Jesus was sent from God. Do you know that? I'm going to get to that in just a second. They, they pretended like they didn't know, but they did know. We found that out, uh, or we, we, we learned that from reading another story. I'm going to tell you about it in just a second. But Jesus shows that he's the Messiah, he's the law-giving prophet, and he is the priest. And there's a typo in my slide here. Um, it says priest and priest, but that's okay because he's greater than the great high priest. So priest and priest, that's, let, let's double down on that. Uh, there's no priest higher than Jesus. Amen. So Jesus is the king, the prophet, and the priest. There's step two for you. Now here's step three. It's implied. If Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king of the new covenant, then the logical thing for the Pharisees to do is to drop to their knees right there and worship him. The son of man has come. The Messiah has come. He is divine. He is God in the flesh. I owe him my obedience, my allegiance, my worship. But instead, what do they do? Recognizing that they have been refuted, verse 14 says, but the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might kill him. The Pharisees realize that Jesus had beaten them. Now, let me tell you how they knew that Jesus came from God. John chapter 3, verse 2, relates the story of Nicodemus coming to Jesus and introducing himself and, and asking, having sort of an AMA time, an ask me anything time with Jesus. Nicodemus was a member of the Pharisees. And do you know what Nicodemus said to Jesus in John 3, verse 2? Nicodemus says that, he says, Rabbi, we know that you were a teacher who had come from God, for no one could perform these things you do unless God were with him. Isn't that amazing? A lot of people think the Pharisees were somehow justified in their unbelief. Jesus was claiming to be God. After all, that's a, a blasphemous claim. No. The Pharisees knew that Jesus was a good teacher, that he came from God. Why? Because no one could do the um no one could do the signs and the miracles that Jesus did if God were not with him. So they knew which makes it all the more devious and reprehensible and malevolent that they go now go off and try to plot his his demise. And I, I, I love the fact that it says destroy him because what does Jesus say elsewhere? Jesus says, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up again in three days. And that's exactly what they're plotting to do now. They're going to destroy him. So, or, or yeah, they're, they're plotting to destroy him. So really, really fascinating uh, let's look at some modern equivalents of this challenge. 
Objection one, the Bible is incoherent and illogical, so Christians just pick and choose what to believe. After all, um, the law of Moses contradicts what Jesus says, and, and you know it's all supposed to fit together, but it doesn't, and therefore it's incoherent, it's kind of babble, and uh, you know Christians just pick and choose, and that's, that's pretty bad. The second modern equivalent to this challenge would be this. The God of the Old Testament was harsh and uncaring, but the God of the New Testament is compassionate. And you see this objection given in two different ways. One, they say the God of the Old Testament is uh, is evil and therefore you shouldn't believe in him. Or else they'll say, you know, we just want to be like like red letter Christians. You hear that phrase sometimes. You know, we don't follow the God of the Old Testament. Uh, we follow the God of the New Testament. We follow Jesus who's compassionate, who's kind. And uh, that's that's our God, not uh, evil, immoral God of the Old Testament. All right, so how do, how do we rebut, refute these claims. We want to do it like Jesus because you have to defend God's truth God's way. All right, so the first objection, the Bible is incoherent and illogical, so Christians just pick and choose what to believe. How do we how do we respond to this presuppositionally? Step one, without God, what's wrong with incoherence? What's wrong with picking and choosing? Y- you know, from a from a non-biblical, non-Christian worldview, why is that a problem? Now, as a Christian, of course, yeah, I get I get what that's a problem, but let's stay in the non-Christian worldview for a minute and just sort of sit there and feel the weight and the power of this first step of the argument. If if there if God is not there, what is this this moral standard? What is this logical standard by which Incoherence is a problem. Picking and choosing, being arbitrary is a problem. Plus, isn't it true that non-Christians hold many contradictory beliefs and practices anyway? See, we can be like Jesus. We can point out their own practices. Um, Arbitrary standards therefore lead to inconsistent practice. Let me give you at least one example. How many people who are uh, self-professed pro-choicers, they're pro-choice, meaning they're fine with babies being killed in the womb, and yet, they would be um, they would be mortified, mollified, if someone were to intentionally poison an unborn child who the mother wanted. Isn't that very uh, self contradictory? Now I know in uh, in certain places like Colorado, they're starting starting to be more consistent with their laws, which is horrible. Where they're starting to say if you kill a pregnant woman, her child only you're in charge for double homicide. But uh, that's a relatively new development, and and most um, pro-abort people would uh, would be mortified by that, and and rightly so, because it is a taking of a human life. Or how about this for a double standard? Pro-abortion people, pro-choice people, will oftentimes have fur babies. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, Dogs, cats, pets, and they treat them like babies, like they're their children. And they got the sticker on the back of their car, you know, who rescued he, who? And, uh, you know, like, what? Like your dog rescued you? Like your dog saved you? Like, what are you talking about? All right, I don't want to rip on people who adopt dogs. I think that's a good thing. Caring for your animals is a good thing. But you can't consistently care for animals and treat them like they're your children and then say, uh, um, it's okay to murder a human child in the womb. And you might say, yeah, but it's all, it's all animals one way or the other. Okay, but even on the non-biblical, atheistic worldview, 
what what are humans? How are they related to animals? Aren't humans supposedly more evolved? Aren't they higher on the evolutionary ladder? So as Jesus might say, isn't a human worth more than an animal? Ontologically speaking, evolutionarily speaking, I don't believe in evolution, but they do. And so you can hold them to that standard and show them the inconsistency of their own practice. All right. So step two, we could say something like this. Look, God is necessary for consistency to matter. Most so that that's important because first of all, if you want to even make sense of consistency and incoherence, you have to have a standard. God is that standard. Now we're inviting them into our biblical worldview for the sake of argument and uh, and inviting them to see the internal consistency there. Furthermore, and I a Christian apologist who usually doesn't do this. Um, he says he doesn't have Bible studies with non-believers, and and, and that's fine, but. I don't think there's anything wrong with showing them how contradictions can be explained. In fact, I did a podcast episode recently called uh, Eight Bible Contradictions, quote unquote, refuted in eight minutes. There's nothing wrong with that. I think, it, I think it's a great thing to show them how from within a biblical worldview, look, we uh, here's how we explain that. Now, that might not satisfy the, the skeptic. And that's okay because, again— they're coming from a totally different worldview. But for the sake of argument, internally, within my worldview, they have to at least admit, okay, fine, there's no contradiction there. What about the ones, the, the, the purported contradictions that we can't solve, can't explain? Well, we simply trust. Is that blind faith? No. It's not blind faith because my faith is not in someone who's blind and I'm not blind. I'm, I'm trusting it. it makes perfectly logical sense to trust in the the very God who grounds logic. Logic is necessary for truth to be a thing. If God grounds logic and he grounds truth, I can trust that God to be logically coherent even when I don't understand, especially given the fact that within the biblical worldview and in the unbiblical worldview, whatever it may be, human beings are finite and limited. I'm limited, God is not. If he says something, I can trust him wholeheartedly knowing that A, he cannot lie, he will not lie, and B, he knows more than I do, by definition. All right. Step three, the gospel appeal. Look, inconsistency, Mr. Unbeliever, shows that your worldview is necessarily false. Um, you are believing something that is false. There's an apologist who says, Inconsistency is the sign of a failed argument. It's also the sign of a failed worldview. Contradictions are the sign of a failed worldview. And by the way, they know this. This is why they're accusing Christians of being incoherent. Do you know that? They know that it's the sign of a failed worldview. But you've now just shown them that their worldview doesn't live up to their own standard. And it is self-referentially contradictory and incoherent. Jesus, on the other hand, is the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And now you can invite them to repent and trust in Jesus. So step one, step two, step three. All right, let's look at the the, the final objection. Uh, actually, it's not the final objection for the night because I have one more that I want to I wanna do. But um, uh, the second objection is, the God of the Old Testament was harsh and uncaring, but the God of the New Testament is compassionate. Okay, let's just go through the steps quickly. Step one. If scripture isn't true and God is not the standard for morality without God, what's wrong with harshness? Why is that a problem for you? 
Step two, invite them into your worldview for the sake of argument. God's nature is consistent in Scripture. God is not. God does not change his nature from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And I can show that. I can prove to you, if we do a Bible study, we can do a biblical, the, biblical theological study of God's wrath, for example, or God's kindness. And we can see con- continuity throughout Scripture. But again, where it seems to not be the same, we can trust him because I'm limited and he's not. So in the biblical worldview, we have a defeater. We have we have something that overcomes and defeats that objection. Step three, you want to talk about harsh? You want to talk about a harsh outcome if that's what you're afraid of? Do you know that it's Jesus in the New Testament who talked more about hell than anyone else? The concept of hell comes from the New Testament, not the Old Testament. Not really. It's alluded to, but not the way it's explicated in uh, the New Testament. Repent, believe in him, and, and spare yourself hell. Let God spare you. Now let's look at one more objection. I'm going to sneak this in. Okay, one last objection, and that's this. The Bible is unscientific because it contains miracles. Okay, this doesn't exactly fit that paradigm we've been looking at, but we can address it in the same way that Jesus does in this passage. Okay, let's hold them to their own standard, just like Jesus held the Pharisees to their own standard. If the universe is not governed by God, it's only governed by chance, here's what I'm doing, I'm entering into the non-Christian worldview for the sake of argument, then anything can happen, literally anything can happen, it's a chance universe, and miracles, therefore, are no problem. It's just stuff bouncing around. There's no order to it, there's no rhyme or reason to it. Again, what's wrong with that? So what? Step two, invite them into your biblical worldview for the sake of argument. Look, if God is there, if God is real, then there should be a consistency in the universe whereby miracles should appear strange and weird and out of the ordinary. And actually, we might refer to them as something like signs. Why? Because they're weird. They're meant to point to something. They stand out like a great big neon sign. In Scripture, that is what miracles are called. They're called signs. They can still happen. There's no problem with miracles in the biblical worldview. God is sovereign over all things, but they're weird. And by the way, let's go to step three. The greatest miracle, you want to talk about miracles? The greatest miracle was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. After he died for sinners like you and like me, repent and believe in him and he'll forgive your sins as well. Okay, so again, the principle and try and drive home and beat into our heads and let the Lord beat into our heads through his word is God's people need to defend God's truth, God's way. So that about wraps it up for this session. Um, if you have questions and you're watching this on YouTube later on or or wherever, Gab TV or, or just some, somewhere else, go ahead. You can um, post, uh, post your comments, your questions there in the comments. If you want to know more about um, the Think Institute and what I do and what we do, what my team does, um, which my team is really uh, my wife and myself and then a few other people who help out from time to time, um, you can shoot me an email at joel.setacase at crewcru.org or thethink.institute at gmail.com. All right. So let's end session two there. See you guys again for session three.